In the name of the Father and the Son and God's Holy Spirit, one God. Amen. The first book that Robert Fulgham ever wrote uh, turned out to be a runaway bestseller. He went on to write a second book, which in my mind was equally good, in which there is a wonderful story about the relationship between a father and a son and how that relationship evolved over the next three decades. So the first episode occurs when the son is all of three years old. His mother is out of town one Saturday, and so the father has to keep the child all day, which he is not accustomed to. And uh, as a result, he is worn out by the whole process. Sometime later in the afternoon, uh, he decides to take the child to the supermarket where they are to do some shopping. And while he steps away, all of a sudden he hears a terrible crash. His son has managed to somehow turn over the shopping cart and along with it, four shelves of merchandise. It looked like a bomb had gone off. There were broken pickle bottles everywhere on the floor. The child had managed to somehow cut himself, so there, were, there was also a blood-curdling scream emanating from his mouth. And as a result, everyone in the store converged to see what on earth had happened. Well, this was the proverbial straw that broke the camel's back for that exhausted young father. Fulgham says that as he stood there, he was calm, but for only one reason— his mind was filled with a single fantasy. I'd just like to run away from here. I'd like to get in my car and just drive, change my name, take on a job as a short order, cook someplace, anything not to have to have contact with another three-year-old. He stood there and said to himself, now someday I am sure I will think this is all funny. But right now, all I can sense in my heart are dark and ugly feelings. You see, at that moment, he was honestly sorry that he'd ever gotten married, sorry that they'd ever had children, sorry that he'd ever grown up, and most of all, sorry that the warranty had run out and he couldn't trade this three-year-old in for one that actually worked. None of this, of course, he could express uh, to anybody, but those thoughts were there. They were dark and they were ugly. Well, the manager and the box boy came by and they were unusually empathetic. And after the mess had been cleaned up and the damages had been paid for, the young father takes his little boy, still sobbing, and walks out to the car. The exhausted child falls asleep on his shoulder almost immediately. He's still asleep uh, when they get home, so the father takes him upstairs, lays him in bed, and tucks him in, and then stands there for a long time and just looks at him. And it probably won't surprise you that that young father didn't run away that night. The scene then shifts uh, to 13 years into the future. It's the same father um, the son is now 16, 
And uh, the father is pacing back and forth in the living room, reading and rereading a letter that he has just gotten from his son. The letter says the son hates him. He's running away from home. Tells the father that he has not only been a failure as a parent, but as a human being. He says, I never want to see you again. My one word for you is that you're a jerk. And frankly, the way the father feels about the son is not that much different at that moment. He stands there looking up at the ceiling and says, why is this happening to me? What have I done to deserve this? And of course, there was no answer. Because if there was going to be understanding, it would only come much later. All he could do in that moment was simply live through it. He said he felt like a jackass standing out in the middle of a hailstorm, simply having to take it. Well, once again, the story shifts to the future, this time 12 years ahead. So the son is now 28 and has a three-year-old of his own. The father now in his mid to late 50s. And in this scene, it's about six o'clock in the morning, the two now grown men rendezvous in order to jog together. You can tell just from the way that they greet each other that there is a lot of affection between them. They begin to laugh and talk as they run. They get to a busy intersection and the son looks both ways and then reaches out protectively to keep his father from harm. When they start up a hill, the son doesn't run ahead, but rather paces himself so that he will stay with the older man. And it's like that all the way home. You can tell just from the way they are that there is a lot of love because they have been through a great deal. Fulgham ends by saying, This story has been repeated a thousand times a thousand. The annals of literature and life are filled with examples of this kind. Parenting has its moments of intense frustration. And childhood is often the time when we get angry and we want to burn bridges and just walk away. And yet more often than not, somehow in their own time and in their own way, sons find their way back to their fathers, and fathers find their way back to their sons. In fact, Fulgham says, just ask the prodigal and his father. They can tell you all about it. First time I read that story, I was struck by two things. First of all, the incredible honesty of it. I mean, here is a very candid glimpse into probably the most intense arena of life, the crucible of family relationships. Most parents don't go around talking about it openly, but I dare say there are very few parents that haven't known moments of frustration like that young father felt in the supermarket that day, when the whole business is just overwhelming and looks hopeless. There's a part of you that simply wants to walk away and never look back. And there is something about the experience of being a child that can produce the same kind of trauma. After all, none of us was born to angels. 
given what our parents have done or sometimes failed to do, there are moments, I think, in everybody's life when you have the impulse to simply turn your back on the whole mess and just not leave a forwarding address. I am under no illusions here. I have been there. You show up at the church door and the greeter welcomes you with a smile and says, how are you this morning? And you smile back and say, great, knowing that just two minutes before, somebody in the car was not talking to somebody else. And yet the other thing that really impressed me about this story was not just its honesty, but the element of hopefulness that is embedded in those words. I want you to underline in your thinking that in these stories, the best won out over the worst. The father, for all of his frustration, didn't run away. And the son, for all of his protests, did eventually find his way back. And this, too, is a glimpse, I think, into the mystery of the reality in which we all live. One of the things that runs through the writings of Bill Beekner, my favorite Presbyterian writer, is that the worst things need not be the last things. There is in all of us a sense of hopelessness and despair that can be very real. But there is also in us a human being that can get beyond that frustration. There is a quitter in every heart. But there is also a tenacious hero. That's something better in us. That though we feel like giving up, we don't give in to that. But rather we get in touch with something deeper and better. And if you can believe our scripture lessons this morning, this heroic winning out of the best over the worst, this is not just a human experience, this is part of the very experience of God. In fact, what you have in these lessons is the really astonishing revelation that God is no stranger to these moments of frustration. God is not surprised, God is not outraged by the way this father felt in the supermarket that, way, that day, or the way the son felt when he was 16. If you listen carefully to our Old Testament that Chris read this morning, it becomes very clear that God has tasted in his own experience that dark sense of frustration, that feeling of wanting to give up. So the context here is that God has just delivered the descendants of Abraham from slavery in Egypt. He has brought them out and now pointed them towards the promised land. There is hope for a new beginning. And God has tremendous hopes and expectations for his beloved children. But no sooner has Moses turned his back, he's actually going up on the mountain to receive the Ten Commandments, and these people forget all about their deliverance. And they did something far worse than turning over a shopping cart. They actually returned to that self-destructive, self-indulgent lifestyle that they had practiced before. And when God sees these ungrateful, rebellious children, there is an enormous sense of frustration and anger that rises up. 
God says, I'm going to turn these ingrates back to toast. There's no hope for creatures that have been given so much and yet would act this way. God is absolutely in touch with the feelings that a parent sometimes knows about a child or that a child sometimes knows about their parent. But that same scripture that is honest about God's tasting of frustration also tells us that just as happened in Fulgham's little story, the best in God won out over the worst. In this case, it is Moses who points out to God that there is more than the frustration that God is feeling in that moment. He reminds God of the covenant promises that he has made in the past. And so you come to this absolutely amazing statement towards the end of our lesson where it actually says the Lord changed his mind. He repented of the evil that he had thought of doing. You see, what I'm suggesting here is that the hope that the worst things need not be the last things, that is a, ho a hope that is rooted in the very experience of God. And you and I are created in that image. We have that same heroic stuff in us. It doesn't mean that we will never know our moments of despair or frustration. But there is more in us than the coward that wants to quit. There is also the hero that somehow in the face of the worst continues to hope and to strive for the very best. The simple truth is that you and I wouldn't be connecting with each other this morning. The rest of the scriptures would never have been written if there wasn't in the very heart of God greater grace than there is despair. Where sin abounds, we say, grace abounds even more. And so this morning I want to make the really breathtaking assertion in saying that there actually seems to be growth even in the life of God, between what we see in our Exodus passage, where God actually seems to struggle with whether or not to give up, and then what we find in our gospel lesson, where, again, in the face of the seemingly worst, God doesn't even seem to entertain the possibility of giving up on his children. It is so frustrating sometimes to deal with children or parents or for that matter, spouses, or co-workers who are foolish and inept, who are sometimes careless and, and who don't live up to all that they could be, and who do things that are incredibly unwise. Robert Fulgham has another story in that same book. He talks about a fire department that was called one day because smoke was billowing out of one of the windows of a house. And they rush in and they find a man asleep on a burning bed. They manage to put out the fire and they rescue the man in a nick of time. And when it's all over, they say to the man, well, tell us then, how did the bed catch on fire? And the man sort of sheepishly replies, I don't know, it was on fire when I lay down on it. And Fulgham goes on to say, what are we to say for a creature who is foolish enough to lie down on a bed that is already burning?
But then he goes on to say, that is a picture of how we human beings so often act. Why do we do things that are so obviously self-destructive? Why do we smoke cigarettes when it says right there on the pack that they can be harmful to our health? Why do we continue to work ridiculous hours knowing that that too is harmful not only to our own health but to health to the health of our family? Why do we stay in abusive relationships? Why do we continue to look for love in all the wrong places? Why do we continue to kill each other somehow in the name of religion? Why, oh why, can you just imagine the frustration that God must feel? And yet something has happened in the very heart of God. The best has won out over the worst. Because just look at our second story. While the prodigal has turned his back on his father, squandered his share of the inheritance, doing what is only harmful to his, himself, the response of the father is not one of anger or rejection, but one of mercy and grace. What I'm suggesting this morning is that the hope that the best can win out over the worst is very real for every one of us. There is not a one of us this morning that will not have our moments of frustration, either with other people or with our own foolishness. There are none of us who are invulnerable to wanting to give up and run away and just say the whole thing is just not worth saving. But when those dark moments of despair sweep over your soul, remember there is something else inside of you beside the quitter. There is also your heroic stuff. There is the capacity for mercy, for keeping on, keeping on. In fact, Beekner is absolutely right. The worst things are never the last things. The father didn't run away that Saturday afternoon. Abraham's descendants did receive the Ten Commandments. The prodigal came home, and God's son went to a cross, which turned out not to be the end, but the very beginning. The best can win out over the worst. Good news for the times that we are living in. Believe it. And because you believe it, never give up. Amen.